the structure of political opportunity is actually Welcome back to the New Pathways podcast. I am JV, and thank you as always for joining us. Today we have our conversation from June 14th, which was Race Amity Day, and we have the community dialogue surrounding aligning the Jewish community with Black Lives, um, and we had this conversation with Rabbi Neil Hirsch, um, Dr. Christopher McDonald Dennis, and Gwendolyn Van Sant. As always, be well. Do as much good work as you possibly can and stay safe out there. Um, so today, I'm, I think uh, Rabbi Hirsch and I had one prep call and um, we shared some readings that we can, if someone from, that has the agenda, can pop them into the chat if people didn't get a chance to look at them. Um, just to support either entering the space or leaving this space. But I, this is a conversation that we, Rabbi Hirsch and I have been having since basically came to the Berkshires off and on. Um, and we really hope today is like getting a deepening of that process started. What it's not is responding to any particular incidents that have happened in our community in the last little bit. So that's not what we're doing today. Um, we are talking about um, Rabbi Hirsch's sort of sharing personal and theological perspectives on um, how Jewish community aligns with the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, I will interject as possible. Um, and we're, I think that's it. Did I miss anything? Rabbi Hirsch on that? No, I, I would just emphasize that as you brought up, I'm speaking for myself today. Yeah. You know, um, and you know, from my, my vantage point, both as uh, as somebody who spends his career um, trying to find relevance in our Jewish in the Jewish tradition uh, in the in the world as we know it, as it is around us, and uh, putting a vision on the world as it could be, also. Um, and so that's sort of what I want to explore with everybody today a little bit. I also am here to listen. Um, and so I, you know, Gwendolyn, as much as this is going to be a conversation between us, I hope that everybody else will have the opportunity to, to share some and for us to dialogue a little bit as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Are there any questions before we get started? Should I, should I introduce myself? Yeah, that was going to be the... <laughs> so if, okay. I, I see a lot of familiar faces uh, looking around the Zoom room uh, right now. I'm really grateful to, to everybody and I'm glad we could be here together this morning. Um, so I, I'm Neil Hirsch. I'm uh, one of the rabbis at Hebra, the synagogue in Great Barrington uh, that's over on State Road. Um, and uh, so it's a, it's a delight to get to be with all of you today. Thank you. Um, so where do we say we we're going to start? I was going to ask you, um, so when I talk about uh, Jewish faith and Jewish culture, um, I think that I would put myself on Bridges Cultural Competence Continuum at Precompetent, despite my personal relationships with folks and what I've learned and experienced. And so I'm um, still really eager to work with you on developing a, a, a race curriculum for our community that helps put all this together. But I thought we could just start today of you sharing some ideas and thoughts to get us all um, with a shared set of language and concepts around how to talk about this. So um, thanks. And I, and I think I, I could say ditto <laughs> in the other direction also. <laughs> Um, you know, 
Gwilin, you sort of highlighted this a little bit in, in the introduction to this to this conversation, which was that this is, uh, in a lot of ways, the continuation of a conversation you and I have been having off and on for five years. Um, and I'm grateful for that and grateful that it gets to continue. Because um, I don't think there's any other way to do it, uh, yeah. quite frankly. Um, and so um, my thought was to offer two different um, uh, stories, one personal, one um, out of the Jewish tradition that can serve as um, frames to understand um, sort of my, my viewpoint in terms of what is the um, sort of the, the Jewish, um, the Jewish responsibility to allyship in this moment around Black Lives Matters. Um, and, um, you know, the, the personal um, starts when I was a, when I was a kid um, so I grew up in Houston, Texas, um, you know, fourth largest city in the United States. Um, the part of town that I grew up in was, uh, was, um, was a highly diverse community. Um, the high school I attended was a highly diverse uh, school. Um, and um, my father um, grew up in a small town in Louisiana, um, one of only a handful of Jewish kids in his, his high school. Um, and uh, when we when I was, I was probably maybe 10 or 11 years old, um, went back with him. The town was about maybe a little bit smaller than Pittsfield. Um, he and I went back to, to that town uh, for his high school reunion, 25th high school reunion, 30th, something like that. Some major milestone high school reunion that he wanted to go to. Um, we drove in the night before, and as we were, um, we picked up the only local radio station at the time, which was broadcasting um, a local preacher I'm giving a fire and brimstone sort of sermon uh, that was, you know, that was charismatic and compelling. You just wanted to listen to it. And even though it's not my own faith tradition, it was really the, the, the content of what this, of what this fellow had to say over the radio was really interesting. Um, and we, and we listened and we discussed it, uh, my father and I, and um, we get to the reunion the next day. And this, um, this, this um, big guy, just imposing presence um, walks up to my father and says, Michael Allen, and gives him a big hug because in Alexandria, Louisiana, everybody's known by your middle name, by your first name and your middle name, uh, even if you only want to be called by your first name. Um, so my father, Michael, is always Michael Allen whenever he's back in Louisiana. Um, and so he's, you know, Michael Allen, how are you? Big old, you know, back slap uh, and they catch up. And this guy acts as if he's one of my father's closest childhood friends. My father introduces me, says, do you remember when we were listening to the radio last night? This is so-and-so. Um, he's now pastor of a church and we were listening to his sermon last night on the radio you know nice to meet you sir how, how do you do and they have small talk for a few minutes and then um and then move and then he moves on to somebody else at the reunion to go say hello um and i turned to my father and i said to him i said i didn't um you've never mentioned that guy to me before i've never heard you tell any stories about him he acted as if he was one of your best friends and um and my father said oh no he wasn't one of my best friends he was the guy who used to beat the stuff out of me he used a more colorful word uh, who used to beat the stuff out of me every day that I used to walk home from school, from middle school through high school, because I was the Jewish kid in the class. That he'd ambush me, attack me, no matter what it was, he terrorized me each day, um, as often as possible. He said, clearly that guy doesn't remember that anymore, does he? Uh, and my father sort of laughed it off. And I remember this split second of a realization of differentness, um, of, oh wait, right? there is something about uh, the nature of my family um, the nature of my community that people uh, that other people see um, as different than I do. 
their understanding of who I am in the world is different than my understanding. Um, and those things don't, um, don't coexist. Um, they, they, um, they're, they're, there's friction between the two. Um, and that was one of my first realizations of that, um, of that differentness. There are other stories that I could tell also that from that point on um, of um, sort of wrestling with um, in a um, predominantly Christian community um, um, our role as, as an active Jewish family and a proudly Jewish family. Um, but for me, that's where um, those sorts of interactions that I had growing up, um, which um, in an albeit admittedly um, blessed childhood and blessed life, uh, were moments of, um, or were embers, maybe we could call them embers, that showed me um, the world as it could be if I were to sort of push at those and better understand them and try to um, uh, be in, in circles of conversation that were more about understanding rather than difference or to reach across lines of difference um, and to recognize um, the, the vulnerability and pain that, that, that I experienced and to hear that in the voices of others, even if it wasn't the exact same experience. Um, and so for me, that's where a lot of my own interest in, in justice work and in working across lines of difference comes from, um, was because of that experience and other experiences like it. Um, the other, the other frame that I, I wanted to bring to this conversation is the theological one, um, which to me comes back to the book of Exodus. Um, the story, and, and, um, I think Jeff, did I see that you dropped in the, the, um, the passage from, uh, from Ritual Well, thank you. Um, the, the Exodus story tells the story of the Israelites um, who had um, been um, placed into, um, in, into slavery under, uh, under Pharaoh um, and who cried out to God. And hopefully we all know the story. Um, 10 plagues later, let my people go, um, made their way out into uh, the wilderness to really begin their conversation as a, uh, not just conversation with God, but relationship with God and distinct uh, and distinct narrative of who they were to be um, as their own self-actualized people. Um, to me, that's the moment of, that's the, that's the story that intersects. Um, you know, if you look at, there's an amazing, and I'd be happy to find it, I, I couldn't find it in, prior to our conversation today. Um, some of us may know Rabbi Everett Gindler, um, who's a member of our community, lives here in the Berkshires. Um, Rabbi Gindler um, was one of a handful of rabbis who was deeply engaged in the civil rights movement in the 60s, the 50s and 60s. Um, and he was the connector between Dr. King um, and um, Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel um, and some other um, significant rabbis of that, of that era. Um, and he facilitated a conversation between Heschel, who was um, of, the 60, of the 1960s, one of the main public theologians in the Jewish community, um, with Dr. King. Um, and it was the Exodus story that they found common, out, common ground on to be able to relate to. The experience of um, of oppression into freedom, the experience of, of constriction. Egypt is the narrow places. Uh, in Hebrew, we call Egypt Mitzrayim, which comes from the word Tsar. And Tsar literally means a narrow place. Um, and so what does it mean uh, in a spiritual frame to be released from a narrow place into, into the redeemed place, which is out in the open? Now, the fuller story is that we're not there yet, right? Because if you were to look at the cycle of uh, reading that we currently have in, the, in, in, in our um, cycle of Torah reading. Um, right now, we're reading the story of the book of Numbers, which tells the story of the 40 years of wandering through the wilderness. The Israelites had to go through that moment of redemption, then the wandering, and then only to make it to um, Eretz Zavat Halavu Devash, we say in Hebrew, the land that flows with milk and honey, the promised land, right? Get to the destination. Um, you need that 40-year period 
um, to be able to wrestle and better understand who you are um, as a person and vis-a-vis -vis other peoples as well um, to be able to come out on the other side. Um, I think we're doing a lot of wrestling right now. Um, and I think we're doing a lot of wrestling with ourselves and with one another. Um, and, um, and I think it's all in purpose of getting to the other side. Um, some of you know that I come out of the world of community organizing also. Um, and in that world, um, we, um, we talk about the world as it is versus the world as it should be. Um, and I think each of us carries within us a vision of the world as it currently is. That's what we see through our own eyes. And we hold on to a vision of the way that it could be. And it's about trying to bring those two visions closer and closer together um, with a little bit more of the world as it is uh, in it. To me, that's the Exodus story. I mean, you know where the destination is. We know what it looks like. We know how to get there. It's just a matter of actually doing the work that'll take us there. Um, and that's what happens in the book of Numbers. Um, so um, in this moment of, um, of the last few weeks with, um, with the Black Lives Uprising, um, the question that's been on my mind is, given my personal story, given, given my, own, my own dedication um, to trying to, to leave the world a bit more whole than it was the day before, because of the experiences that I've had, and because of the, the belief that I have that we are on a path towards, um, towards uh, a promised land, um, in this moment, how can I, come in, how can I um, step beside all of those who are fighting for black lives, um, step alongside uh, and be a partner to an ally to, uh, to all those who are, um, who are fighting that righteous fight? Um, and how can I help lend a constructive voice? That's the essential question in my, in my mind. Um, you know, living in the COVID world that we do, I think we've got a lot more questions than we do answers a lot these days. Um, but part of the conversation I'd love to have today is um, what is the role of the Jewish community to be able to um, stand up and, and be a strong ally? What does that really look like? Um, and, and to be in partnership uh, across lines of difference. So I hope that helps flesh out some of the thinking between um, personal frame and theological frame. Oh, I'll just mention uh, really quickly um, the last piece, because um, I, I mentioned it, but I didn't, I glossed over it. Um, Jeff just shared out this uh, resource that um, is um, from, um, was produced a few years ago. Um, and Ritual Well is a, a wonderful resource for creative Jewish liturgy, amazing poetry and, um, and rituals that have been created for various, uh, various times, um, put out by the Reconstructionist denomination of Judaism. Um, and on that website, they have there um, a Black Lives Matters Haggadah. Um, so a group of people who are um, uh, incredibly young leaders, um, all Jews of color, um, put together a Haggadah. A Haggadah is the story that we tell of the Exodus at Passover. Um, Passover is our celebration of moving from uh, slavery to freedom. Um, and so they took the story of the Haggadah that we tell and they also filtered the story of Black Lives Matters through it. And it's an incredible resource uh, and well worth taking a look at because if you want to um, get more underneath the hood of the, of the Jewish exodus experience through the lives of Black, of black Lives, it, it might integrate some of that together uh, in a really beautiful way. So. Thank you. Um, I'm going to, before we go to the next section of this, I, I'm just going to ask because I think there's a level of confusion. And... I don't know how much to do now, but how much can you discern Jewish faith um, from Jewish culture? And who like, who and what goes under that umbrella? I think that when we're talking, um, 
a, a default are white Jews, right? And then and if you talk about the Berkshires, it's white New York Jews, right? Just to be really honest, right? So like, how do we have a different mind view of like who we're talking about right now? All right, so I'm 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 nodding because I'm also seeing some other nodding heads. Um, I can't see everybody in my window, but I can see Ari <laughs> giving snaps. Um, yeah, the um, so uh, realization: the American Jewish community is not all white Europeans uh, of white European descent, right? And this is a wrestling the 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 Jewish community is currently going through. Um, I I, um, I apologize. I'm on an iPad, so it's not easily for me to type in a, a something into this. But if somebody has access to the Google machine um, uh, and can put it into the chat box, there's something called the um, Jews of Color Field Building Initiative um, that is um, an incredible new opportunity that's emerged out of Stanford University. Um, Alana Kaufman is the director of the program, and it's uh, it's about building the field of Jews of color in the Jewish community specifically. Um, and it's well worth taking a look at. They've got some beautiful uh, resources and some really fresh language um, to pay attention to. Um, they also, Lana Kaufman is a sociologist and she recently did a study on what is the population of Jews of color in the United States currently. And she makes the argument, and some people argue with her, with her techniques, but that's a finer point among sort of Jewish demographers, um, about what is the population of Jews of color in the United States. And we've been vastly underestimating the number based on the way that we've been going about um, population surveys, um, is her argument. Um, so we've been um, silencing um, or hiding um, Jews of color in our own, in, in our own community, um, in effect, was, is what that means. Uh, and out of that realization then spawns, okay, how do we then, what do we then do because of that? Um, so, but going back to your original question, Gwendolyn, um, one of the, um, one of the, the um, most challenging aspects of the Jewish community overall is distinguishing between faith and community. Right? We are not only a tradition, we're not only a, a faith tradition, a set of beliefs and practices and rituals, but we're also um, just, um, this, here I'm quoting um, Barry Schrag, who's the past president of the Jewish Federation in the Boston area. Judaism isn't only a religion, it's a club. Um, right, it's it's a um, it's a a community. Um, there are in larger communities Jewish community centers that are uh, operate and function in similar ways to YMCA's, um, and there's a sense of belonging that emerges in the Jewish community that I think um, transcends just the religious aspects of it. Um, you know, so um, another book that I would re strongly recommend is um, Here All Along um, by um, by Sarah Hurwitz. Um, Ms. Hurwitz was the um, speechwriter for, um, for Michelle Obama. Um, and um, after her time, I think while she was um, serving in the White House as the First Lady's um, speechwriter, she was also on her own personal spiritual quest uh, and spiritual walk and um, ended up writing a book. She was raised as a typical white Jewish suburban girl. Um, and she, um, and she uh, went into mindfulness practice and she went into other traditions for a good long while and she, um, and she came back to, um, did a deep dive, took an intro to Judaism class and was lit up by the spiritual aspects of Jewish practice and found it here all along. Um, and in the introduction to the book there, she actually has a really great description that there are people who identify and say, I'm a religious Jew, I'm a um, secular Jew, I'm a cultural Jew, I'm a uh, you know, I'm Jew by heritage, right? I'm Jewish, but I'm not religious. Um, you know, uh, what I hear some of my wedding couples who I officiate at who say, Rabbi, we're really excited to have a rabbi officiate at our wedding, but just please don't be too Jewy about it. And <laughs> to which I respond, you're 
two Jewish people who are getting married and you have a rabbi officiating, like, okay, what does that look like? Um, to better understand that, <laughs> and I, we have an interesting conversation there. Um, but um, there are different planes on which we can relate to what the Jewish community is. Um, one is the, the, the theological frame. What is our relationship as Jews to, um, to God, however we might define God? There is um, the learning side of it, our relationship to Torah. Um, so our connection to um, sort of Jewish academics and, um, and the academic enterprise, which some people label in the Jewish tradition as just as spiritual as any prayer practice. I, I'm, one of those, I'm one of those types of Jews. Um, and, um, and then the third is, uh, is the connection to Israel. And here I'm using that word uh, very technically. By Israel, I do not mean the state of Israel, um, but I mean the people of Israel. We talk about Am Yisrael, the people of Israel, which is um, anybody who considers themselves to be a part of the Jewish community. Um, there are different ways that 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 that, that um, Jewish community is transferred. Right, most often we say it's transferred by by uh, by genetics. Right, your parents were Jewish, so you're Jewish. Um, but it really it's also a matter of embracing the Jewish community along with that. Everybody today is a Jew by choice, um, and so um, the the. Um, the connection to Israel, the community piece of it, is another way to sort of see the community and see our connection of what Judaism means. So um, as opposed to um, Catholicism, which has a creed and a belief system and, and a religion, there's no ethnic identity markers that go along with, um, with Catholicism, um, as far as I understand it. Um, with Judaism, you can, you can approach Judaism as its own full civilization, uh, to quote Mordecai Kaplan, uh, another uh, theologian who was the father of uh, Reconstructionist Judaism. So, and who had a book by that title? Thanks for coming to my TED talk. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I, that was very helpful. And I think this is sort of part of a bridge practice of like, how do we develop a shared understanding and shared knowledge, and even know what we're talking about, right? And at this point, know who we're talking about. But I think that that was really helpful. Um, to, to enter into conversations that are all around us all the time, and then particularly right now. Um, and, and if I may, then coming back to our, our original topic for today, and to the fact that American, the American, the American Jewish community is not all white Ashkenazi Jews of European descent. Um, that's what Ashkenazi means. Um, the 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 wrestling that I think the progressive liberal. American Jewish community is doing, and I mean that as a large umbrella, um, is wrestling with what does it mean to be a multiracial, multi-ethnic community? That's the 2020 conversation, um, right? The old version of it was, let's talk about black Jewish relations. Um, but the um, but today what I'm seeing is that, speaking to, about Hever in particular right now, we're a multiracial, multi-ethnic community. And so it's not, it's an, it, it is a, um, it's a tapestry now. It's not a, uh, it's not, um, a dichotomy where we step into um, circles um, where we are relating to, to, to people of color, it, it is just our community. Yeah. And I don't think we fully have the language or the skill set or the toolbox yet to really understand how to be our best selves in that, in that environment. Thank you for that. So we've met our objectives. <laughs> Uh, my deal and I planned. Um, we want um, to now open it up to a conversation with everyone here um, about really aligning. You know, we've been trying to work since our new Pathways Labs about um, decentering whiteness, right? By centering the movement, centering Black Lives Matter, 
Um, this ends up being a crucial part because we are a multiracial, multi-ethnic society. So this is a crucial piece that we have to develop understanding and alignment and figure out, as Rabbi Hirsch just talked about, how to work together, how to acknowledge that, and how to do it better and better as we go along. So we're hoping to, again, hold this space for our greater community in developing that muscle. So now we invite folks here to engage in a conversation. Um, and I know that some folks on the call have We've kind of put our heads together with some of the resources. So at the end, Lily has some to, um, a tool to share with us. But we have a few minutes to have a conversation. So, can we ask a question? Absolutely. Okay. Um, I I I I'm asking, what does why was the hiding of the black Jews? What what was that all about? What was the why did they have to be hidden? Oh, I think what I meant by that um, wasn't that they had to be hidden, but that we were unaware of it. It was like, you know, sort of like an eclipse in front of your eyes. You can't see it. Oh. Um, I think the, the, the dominant story in the Jewish community over the last few decades um, has been about, has been ethnos, has been um, European centric. Um, and, uh, and because of that, um, we as a community have denied the experiences of other Jews worldwide. Um, you know, there are, um, there are uh, uh, communities, Jewish communities around the world that have existed for centuries who are not a part of the American Jewish narrative, um, but yet whose Jewishness is just as thick as anything else that you might encounter. So Yemeni Jews from Yemen, uh, from Yemenite who now mostly live in Israel, um, who since immigrated from, from Yemen. Iraqi Jews have a very distinct culture, different and apart from anything you'd experience from uh, European Jews. Um, the um, uh, Moroccan Jews and, uh, and North African Jews have a whole uh, heritage um, unique to them. Um, there is a, uh, a, tri there's a very interesting um, community in Uganda known as the Abu Daya Jews. Um, who um, converted to Judaism and um, their entire tribe collectively converted to Judaism and began to study and learn. Um, and they have their own distinct set of uh, culture and music and, uh, and storytelling and it's beautiful and amazing. Um, so I think in the last 20 years really, we've had an eye-opening experience to that. Um, and that conversation has happened by the way, both here and in terms of progressive circles in, in Israel. You're seeing that there. You're seeing a big push towards multiculturalism in Israel as well, which um, when you get underneath the hood of the conversation about, uh, about Israel, um, you end up finding um, people calling for recognition that Israel is a multicultural, multiracial community as well. Um, so so can, I, can I ask just a point? Did, would you say a, a short answer to Stephanie's question is really another function of white supremacy and Eurocentricity? Yes, white privilege, right? The, the Jewish community uh, from the time that we, uh, from major waves of, of immigration in the late 1800s, early 1900s, and then especially uh, immediately after the Holocaust um, was so focused on, um, on making it. Yeah. Right? Uh, that uh, it was at, at that expense um, yeah. and, and making it as white people, um, right? Mm -hmm. I have, um, uh, my rabbi in, in college, I remember him telling a story one time about him realizing that um, that he was white, um, you know, because he always thought of himself as Jewish. 
he didn't think of himself as white. But yeah. then somebody else pointed out his whiteness to him. And he went, oh, wait, I actually am white, right? So I think collectively we've been going through that process. Yeah. So one of the things when I when I call you or Dara or someone is when I hit up against the conversations when it is a centering of a black experience and there's this pushback about it's it become it, it lands as a pushback about Jews are also oppressed right and then all of a sudden that it, it we have to fight the tide for that taking center right like that there's this kind of thing about like wait wait Jews are oppressed peoples too and there's not a lot of attention on this little conversation that we just had right so. I, that's part of where I think our community needs to develop skills and capacity to have a, a conversation, right? Um, you can see that. You can see the function of white privilege and white supremacy, but you can't really, we're, we're not at a space yet where we've been able to have that conversation as a community, in my view, and why I, I call you guys. You know, it's like, how, how can we do this and how can we do it better, right? Like, um, so I just think. I see Ari's hand. Oh, thank you. Um, yeah, I think you hit on it. Um, just that I think, you know, for a lot of white Jews, speaking for myself, like my family assimilated and chose whiteness over um, really standing in solidarity with Jews of color and Jews as a as a group of people. And I'm thinking about um, you talked about the narrow place, right, which is like the the metaphor. For, for like the psychological and emotional experience of oppression. And like, so what does it mean when white Jews are creating that narrow place for, for people of color in the US, right? And like part of becoming, you know, an Ashkenazi Jews in the United States was like being like, we will now oppress black people and brown people and Jews of color. And so how do we, I think, I'm just thinking a lot about how do we hold that and really step into awareness around how we create that narrow place for other people and still acknowledge that part of our history, but that that's, we're living in a different reality now where we're holding that, I think, more than experiencing it for me, that, that, speaking from my perspective. Yeah. They, uh, how many people who uh, have, Jewish roots um, did their grandparents great-grandparents when they came to the United States if they came from a European background change their last name to be something uh, more palatable for uh, the as an American right don't don't um, call yourself Schwartz call yourself Smith right which is in effect blending in and hiding um, a different form of hiding Stephanie um, your, your Jewishness um, I had a fellow, Cohen is a very Jewish last name. Um, I had a fellow who took an intro to Judaism class with me whose, whose name was Jonathan Cohen. Um, we think Jewish guy, right? And he was raised Southern Baptist um, because his father um, converted um, and never mentioned and, and lived in a community where, um, where people weren't aware of Jewish last names in the same way um, and basically hid his family inside of this, this, um, this community that he grew up in. Um, and never mentioned his Jewishness um, and only learned of it later on down the road as, a, as an adult and took intro to Judaism with me because he wanted to explore um, what his last name was all about and better understand the tradition that his, um, going farther back, his ancestors had come from. Um, I hear you on the participating in, in oppression, uh, in, in, in systems of oppression um, on this. And I mean, to me, the most uh, egregious example, one of the most egregious examples, there's lots of them, um, 
but you know, uh, Stephen Miller is Jewish. Um, the who currently works in the White House. There's other people who are currently working in the White House uh, who are um, who are um, the ones most uh, aggressively advocating for um, oppressive practices and, and aggressive practices towards um, people of color. Um, and I, I don't know how that happens. Like, how does how does how does that happen? What are we supposed to do with that? Um, I don't have a great answer to that. Um, and I don't need to go. I don't. I don't want us to get into a, a place where we just start. Um, you know. Yeah. Uh, uh, <laughs> Yeah, going on about uh, the White House, but um, I think one of the other points that you're seeing, though, Ari, in some of the conversations that I've been a part of inside of the Jewish community, um, yeah, I do. Is is that we do all hold up? I hear you. Um, and what I was about to say is, in reaction to that, um, there are the starts of conversations now about how do we actually inside of the Jewish community and inside of specifically the Reform movement. And I can speak more to some of those conversations if you want me to. Um, how do we start to undo some of that? So those conversations are happening. Yeah, so I think that's another, we can pin it. We haven't talked about our parking lot yet today, but we could pin that in our parking lot as like what to come back to. Because I think those, having those specific conversations at our fingertips would be helpful. Um, I saw Jeff and Arlene's hands up, so I'm going to go to Jeff and then Arlene. Yeah, um, I mean, I think that, you know, just thinking about, you know, how does it happen? Um, I think it goes back to what Ari said, that like a lot of, a lot of safety um, for white Jews has been about assimilating into white supremacy. Um, I know that that has been, has been my experience. Um, and I remember, you know, there, there was one time that I was having, um, having this really powerful conversation um, with a black pastor about black and Jewish solidarity um, and how that feels like it ought to be an easy connection um, because we share, you know, so much of that experience of oppression and how it feels like so often we run into the dynamic that, that Gwendolyn talked about of ending up, um, you know, say, running into this like, well, you know, Jews are best people to and a feeling of like not mutual recognition. I mean, we had a, a wonderful conversation about how that is actually a function of white supremacy um, that is setting, you know, that sets black communities and, and white Jewish communities um, against each other. Um, and, you know, so I think when, when I thought about, um, for me as a, you know, as a secular Jew, but someone who, who believes really deeply in, um, in the culture of Judaism and in, in the teachings that I was raised with, um, I think, you know, part of, part of the recognition for me of how we get to Black and Jewish solidarity is that we actually need to sit down and have, have these conversations, um, like in much, in much greater depth and detail about, like, what is the, what is the white Jewish experience? What is the experience of Jews of color? How has that been erased? Um, and how do, you know, how do Jews, um, you know, white Jews like myself hold both, um, you know, the realities of, of oppression and also the realities of white privilege, um, because those things, you know, coexist um, in, in one body. So, I mean, I think for me, you know, one of the things that I would love to see us commit to, and Gwendolyn, maybe this goes in, in the parking lot, um, is actually, you know, having, having a real dialogue um, about race and Judaism that goes deeper, because I think it's, I think it's complicated. And I think it takes a lot of time and a lot of vulnerability and a lot of honesty to unpack, unpack that. 
Um, so, you know, I know that um, I know that Bridge has sometimes done like real talks on race, um, like at, at churches and faith communities. Um, and I wonder if we could um, could do like a real talk on race, um, you know, for Jews that really would you know would give us the space to to dig into this um, and to really to really talk these things out. Um, because I think if we don't talk about those dynamics, um, then we're still not going to get to Black and Jewish solidarity. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, I think it goes in the parking lot and have ideas and fits in with how we're going to close out the session. But um, thank you, Jeff. Uh, Arlene? Well, maybe my remarks belong in the parking lot. Well, try us out. You have to say what goes in the parking lot. They can't go quiet. You say them. Oh. Okay. Uh, well, my mother was a Holocaust survivor, so I grew up uh, with a person who looked at Jews as uh, victims. And um, when I got to junior high school, now called middle school, uh, my school was 50% white and 50% black. And uh, as I became friends with black kids, my mother's racism came out. And I said to her, how can you of all people turn around and be having this prejudice against other people when your family was killed because of it? How, how are you of all people? I just could not wrap my brain around this. And she could not wrap my brain around the fact that, that I could be friends with black people. So we had this just incredibly difficult time the rest of my childhood because we just could not understand each other. It was, was very, very difficult. So uh, I, I know this is a, a very tough conversation and, um, and some people will never get there, but I think we have to try. Thank you. That did not belong in the parking lot. Thank you for sharing that. I, I, um, and I think, again, if we take a step back to systemic racism, it benefits from all the many ways in which we get pitted against one another, right? So the big deal for any oppressed white people, whether it's by economics or by maybe being a white Jew, is that you, at least you're not black, right? We're like, that's the thing, right? Nobody wants to be black. You know, um, when people migrate to this country, you know, you don't, you won't, I'm sorry, you don't want the legacy of what being black in America is as far as the socioeconomic struggle, right? So that's that's what I mean by no one wants to be black. Um, just to be clear, and no, don't take that quote out of context. <laughs> like, whoa, whoa. I just realized like I'm like all live everywhere. So okay. So just so that's clear, that's what I meant. So that um, you know, when I'm trying to talk about systemic racism and we're trying to do that in poor white communities, that's the historical legacy we have to kind of unpack, right? Is that this is what they were sold. Like you might be poor, but you're not black, you know? Um, in the Cracking the Codes, um, or it might be Race, Power, Illusion, but there, one of those documentaries, you know, it just said that, like, we couldn't even be in the melting pot, right? We, the Black people, yeah. were the embers below the pot, right? Like, we couldn't even get into the pot. So nobody wants to be there, right? Because what happens to embers, right? So that's the, that's the, I think that's what your mother was struggling with. It was like, we, we're here to make it. I've been through this once before. We are not going to associate with that. We're not going to be get that treatment, right? The legacy of anti-Black racism in this country 
is inescapable and people know it, right? Even if they say they don't know it and don't see it, they know that they wouldn't exchange their identity for it, right? So I think that that's what, that's what you came up against as a young child. Glenn, can I give a, a couple just, uh, observations yeah. uh, from some of the sharing that's happened today? Um, one is that I think is conversations that I've been in have uh, about black Jewish relationships and centering um, Jews of color in the conversation in the Jewish community. Um, as a lot of that stuff has started to unfold, one of the things I've been uh, aware of is, um, the, is the nature of time and sort of the generational effect mm -hmm. of the conversation, uh, which I think is important to notice. Um, and um, there is, when we talk about um, uh, oppression as the experience of oppression as Jews, the most recent moment in history to go back to um, that, that we pay attention to is, uh, is the history of genocide around the Holocaust um, and that experience therein. Um, and that doesn't necessarily um, work for us also when we consider the immediate privilege of the last few generations that we've experienced. Um, and I think in recent history, when you look at uh, white supremacists, white nationalists marching in North Carolina yelling, the Jews will not replace us, um, while that can be read as an anti-Semitic trope, when you get underneath the hood of what that's all about, um, that's where I think we actually find um, unity across lines of difference because what um, white, what that expression of white supremacy is all about is replacement theory, right? and that there's some giant international cabal of which the Jewish community is a part and really helping lead that involves um, uh, black Americans and involves um, people of color and involves the LGBTQ plus community and involve, you know, and, and so at that point, those who would oppose us uh, have, uh, do not care about the difference among all of us because we're all othered um, in, that, in that arena. Um, and so to take that awareness and then also then to flip it back around to some of the places where then for those who are, um, in that camp, but then who still have the privilege of whiteness to then wrestle with the whiteness and what that then affords being in that conversation. I think that's the next conversation. Yeah. Um, you know, last, um, and this is my last thought, um, last year, um, the reform movement, the, the denomination that I'm a part of, we just passed a resolution um, to, uh, to, to be on the record um, in favor of some system of reparations um, and, uh, and went through a process to be able to understand what it meant to make that public statement. I was involved in helping write the resolution um, and, um, and um, the, um, the the interesting thing is then, okay, what do we do with that now? And where do we go with it? And how do we actually wrestle with our own privilege to be able to then get into a conversation uh, with our allies about pushing that agenda for something like that is one example, pushing an agenda of reparations forward and being good allies on that front. That to me then moves us into the, into the what's next and the positive conversation. So. Thank you. Thank you. Lily, I'm, I'm handing it over to you. Yeah, I was going to say, <laughs> I'm wondering if I can just kind of hop in. Um, I, I have really appreciated this dialogue and um, would echo what I think has come up a number of times, would love a, a longer 
um, larger space to get into some of these um, specific dynamics and unpack um, what's really a play. Um, but I also wanted to lift up um, a resource that came out this week, and I'm going to drop it in the chat again, um, called Not Free to Desist, um, which kind of takes its title from a quote by Rabbi Tarfan, um, right? It is not incumbent on you to complete the work, nor are you free to desist from it. Um, and it's an open letter from Black Jews and Jews of color and white allies um, written by Lindsay Newman, Aaron Samuels, and uh, Rachel Sumek. Um, but folks have, many folks have signed on at this point. Um, that uh, is an open letter to Jewish federations and institutions and synagogues and camps and initiatives um, that highlights kind of seven points, right, around where to actually dig into this work. And one of the things that I really appreciate about this is that um, I think it kind of holds what I think of as that piece of like an accountability frame to harken back to our last conversation, right? Like the, the internal reflection um, and conversations that are needed, but also that accountable piece of action too. Um, so, and, and there's like some explicit, like four of these commitments within, within the next year and seven of these commitments within the next three years. Um, and I'm wondering, I, I would really encourage folks to go to the website and kind of read this in full, but um, if we have time for it, could I just read se the seven of these? Great. <laughs> there you go. Uh, great. Um, so, oops, uh, one, explicit endorsement that Black Lives Matter. Two, establish racial justice and social equity as an explicit pillar for your organization. Three, commit to explicit anti-sectional, intersectional, anti-racist and inclusive hiring and compensation practices. Four, commit to anti-racist educational initiatives, curriculums and frameworks. Five, invest in Jews of color and people of color leadership development. Six, create a robust list of racial justice, equity, and inclusion requirements that all grantees receiving Jewish institutional funds must adhere to. And seven, engage in the development of a fully funded initiative to assist in our communal accountability. Um, so again, I, I wanted to lift this up because I think for me, um, reading through it, it was just a very helpful resource in terms of putting um, some teeth behind my values, right? Like what would this actually look like? Um, so I encourage folks to take the time to read through that um, on an individual level, thinking about where your accountability actions might lie, but the connections to institutions, to Jewish institutions that you have as well. So that with, I think we landed three or four times and it wasn't planned on getting our real talk on race for Jews, with Jews, alongside Jews, I don't know. But getting that um, that process designed in, in our community, I think that would be a really helpful thing to add to that list of national commitments. Um, and I'm just wondering, I, I think this one, it would be really great. I, I'm very happy to have had this conversation starter today on Race Amity Day. Um, and it's also the end of our morning. So I, I wanna see if we can go around this space in the next few minutes and just, share a, a takeaway from this session and, and the larger session and, and a commitment. So the way that can be the most efficient is if you get out your paper and pen for a second and write that down. <laughs> um, 
some, and you might have to choose if you have a bunch of things, but something that was a, an aha or the next step for you, not what you came into this morning with, but what you're leaving this after the early afternoon with. And then um, value this session. Don't run away. We'll be done in 10 minutes. Somebody dinged out. <laughs> and thank you, Rabbi Hirsch, for being with us. Thank you. I'm honored to be uh, to be a part of this. Thank you. I'm going to start. If you're not ready, just say pass and I'll come back to you. I'm trying to. The Zoom participant list kind of jumps around, so I'm writing it down. Uh, Okay, there you go. Um, so Ari, you're up first. Um, I'm just thinking about um, just the importance of language and how significant it is to be able to like name and dismantle whiteness, but not doing that in a way that erases folks of color, right? And to not do that in a way that centers whiteness, right? So doing that in a way that really centers blackness and black experience and um, for this conversation, the experience of Jews of color. Um, and a step that I'm taking is there are three people in my life um, who I've been having these conversations with and I'm committing to sitting down with them and sharing these resources um, and hopefully inviting them to join the Real Talk on Race. Thank you. Um, I just put, gave some guidelines of how we're going to share in this moment, so thank you. <laughs> um, Danye? My takeaways from this um, has been whiteness needs to cease to exist. Um, my commitment by aiding in that is getting some black rest and also um, building my focus on the work every second while I'm doing the work. Thank you. Uh, Jeff? I think um, my takeaway from this whole morning is just that um, vulnerability and, and uh, like courageous authenticity to echo a phrase that Brooklyn has shared with us and that I like a lot um, is just the key to the, the lock of inaction um, that I think we often, I often feel stuck in. Um, and I think my commitment is um, to be part of a real talk on race for Jews and to help um, with, with making that happen, because um, that feels like a really important conversation um, for our community and also for me uh, personally. I mean, I think that, you know, the value of our conversation is, um, is just to sit down and talk. Honestly, I think, it, I think it is giving us a roadmap for the things that are within our power and that will make real change in our community. Thank you. Lily? Um, my one of my takeaways, uh, I guess I've just sort of been sitting with the um, the like messiness for me around claiming Jewishness and myself that's always kind of felt fraught for me um, because of how I've seen Judaism like weaponized by white institutions and white Jews as a way of um, like avoiding anti-racism work and not choosing not to grapple with um, the implications of white supremacy in those spaces. Um, 
And I guess one of my kind of realizations or aha moments is feeling like um, there's room for that here and there's space for me in that conversation um, as both like a um, commitment, obligation, and like possibility of um, building something else, right? Building something better. Um, and I think my commitment is around also supporting and um, eagerly taking that Real Talk on Race class conversation. Thank you. Sarah? I, I, I think right in this moment, I'm thinking about how much um, some of that insidiousness of whiteness that we talked about earlier really relies on things staying unnamed and unsaid. And so the importance of, of dialogue, but not dialogue in a vacuum. Um, so I'm, I'm committing to listening more deeply to myself and others for um, where that unnaming is happening and calling it out as the silencing that it, it is. Thank you. Alyssa. Um, this has brought up so many interesting memories that I have to unpack with a different lens um, that I really look forward to a further conversation of unpacking and I'm committing to focus my conversations around race um, to stop centering on whiteness. Um, I think that's been some of some of my biggest problems. Um, so trying to refocus that is a commitment. Thank you. Angela. Is she still here? Do you want us to come back to you? Was that a guess? All right, uh, Arlene. Um, I have a commitment to learn more about the reality of Jews of color and the intersectionality of, uh, with them and people of color who are Jewish. And um, I think that um, there's uh, a strong relationship for me between um, saying the names of uh, people who've been murdered and um, saying, talking more aloud about some of the things that, um, uh, it, that I grew up being told not to talk about. So uh, talking, talking, talking. Thank you. Chalice? So um, I think my takeaway in general is multifaceted uh, interconnections of throughout the two sessions that I've been able to join. Um, and my commitment is to being more, uh, having more integrity in my life, speaking up when I need to, um, and trying to counteract some of the negative aspects of whiteness that I had listed earlier uh, in myself. Thank you. Elizabeth? Um, so I was really interested to hear, to learn more about Jews of color. I don't, I don't, um, and um, the phrase not free to desist 
keeps going in my head. Um, and also just um, thinking about how to talk about and work on whiteness, remembering always that the purpose to, to not fall into the trap of recentering whiteness, but that what the purpose is, which is um, ultimately undoing whiteness and lifting up the lives and of people of color. And my commitment is to take some of my personal actions um, to more of a community and institutional level. Thank you. Uh, Erica. Um, my biggest aha was how eloquently you summarized, Gwendolyn, the experience of so many different waves of immigrants and classes of people in response to what Arlene brought up, because that's something I've also wondered about with some of my family members and, and other groups. Sometimes it doesn't make sense that oppressed groups wouldn't stick together, but the way you worded it, Gwendolyn, really made a lot of sense and wanted me to read more about the history of certain groups. And um, what I'm feeling like now is that I've been out of the bridge. Um, I've, I haven't been attending meetings for a few months, and this is just this is just so so nourishing and inspiring for action that I need to get back into it. So you'll be seeing me. All right. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, Jamie, is Jamie still here? There she is. Everybody moved around on my screen. I'm so confused. I don't know why. <laughs> Thank you. Um, yeah, what's really um, hitting home for me right now is the insidiousness of whiteness and white passing and white privilege and how it forces some people, uh, many people, to choose between authenticity and connection and to choose between that and their survival and acceptance. And uh, my action is to become more aware and reflect and dismantle where that lives in me and really looking at how I participate and hold up those beliefs unconsciously. Thank you. Karen. So much to unpack today. Um, I think the word that I keep coming to as my, um, you know, conclusion of today and also as moving forward is continuing working with kindness. Um, I find myself feeling angry and exhausted every day. And if I include kindness to everything, whether it is writing an email or talking to someone or just listening, I think it will help change the outcome. Mm. Thank you. Mm -hmm. uh, Kate, I know you came in at the end, but do you wanna share from what you've heard so far? Kate Manos. Nope. Okay, Lewis. Uh, my takeaway is a feeling of gratitude for um, the two institutions, Bridge and then Hevra, that are kind of represented now, and that having these institutions that are you know, here for the long haul and working on these issues, I feel a lot of gratitude that this exists and can create a structure to actually make things happen. And then uh, my commitment is to find some authentic and effective ways to help and uh, and sustain that finding some ways into to be a part of part of this so 
Thanks. Thanks for being here. Luke. Luke Octavary. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, my takeaway for today is um, thinking about how to support racial justice work um, in times when it's needed urgently and uh, the long term. That's not a place that I've um, succeeded like I want to. And um, I guess my commitment would be um, there's a lot of resources leading up to Race Amity Day that I didn't have time to fully um, go through. And there's a lot in the chat. And, um, um, and I'm looking forward to uh, the bridge community meetings, uh, making those more of a priority. Thanks. Thank you. Uh, Marjorie? Okay, okay. I know have to go. Rabbi Neal? Um, I'm really struck by uh, how deep the conversation is, how much there is. I feel like I'm <laughs> swimming in, a, uh, in the deep end and uh, the, the, the full feeling of not knowing uh, just how deep the water is underneath you, but wanting to explore that. Um, as far as accountability and, and uh, action steps, I want to continue the conversation. Thank you. Um, Stephanie. Well, I do want to thank you, um, Rabbi Hurst and you, Gwendolyn, because I had no idea about that hiding of the black Jews. I was, I was really struck by that. And I thank him for, thank you, Rabbi, for that truth that you just came right out. Like that whole group of people have been thoroughly hidden to keep that white Jewish supremacy intact. I also want to say to you about um, how you saw the difference when you went to that um, the that reunion, and and I'm 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 expecting that you're a little bit older than preschool, because those children, those little brown and black bodies in preschool some of them are being handcuffed and taken to jail. So they already know the difference way before they get <laughs> to teenagers. So um, that trauma that those children are experiencing, even in Berkshire County, those black and brown bodies, young children experiencing the hurt because of the differences that are being put upon their bodies through administration, educators, just the system itself. And I'm going to continue to speak out and speak up for these marginalized, vulnerable communities, no matter what their ethnicity. You know, they're, the truth of these children, they're really being hurt. And, and we need to stop perpetuating that generation after generation. And I'm ready to sever it. Thank you. Thank you. Veronica. Hi. Um, a beautiful voice today reminded me, Donye, she said to me, black, white binary will be the death of us all. And so what that's making me realize is that I have so much white perspective ingrained in me and I want to look out at all perspectives and think of lifting up voices um, that really do um, seek equality and raising up. So I got to look in lots of places for voices to bring us to the place that we need to be in um, particularly voices that are non-white. Yeah. 
Sufan. One of the biggest takeaways that I took um, from the session is about the intersectionality of blackness and uh, being Jewish um, and that I, the whole identity um, going on to saying like there is no one way to be black, Jewish, and if I may also add trans, LGBTQ, etc. Um, and I wrote down that um, dehumanizing an entire group by putting them under one stereotype identity, ways of being, is one of the many weapons that um, whiteness and white supremacy uses to further perpetuate the, um, their superiority. And I think a lot of things, I think the big thing that not many people, I don't want to say acknowledge, but um, brush over is that a lot of people buy into that. Um, and not just uh, the white community either. It's also um, multiple communities. And what I wrote down is that um, what I want to do to, uh, what I want to do is that I want to keep this conversation going um, by making myself vulnerable, um, not um, especially in white spaces, um, because I definitely bought into the, the stereotype that is being perpetuated by white supremacy about um, POCs. And, um, I, and a, a huge part of it is because I grew up in such a white community um, and a white family and, um, and just like a social circle, a white social circle. And I wanna, I wanna make myself vulnerable and um, not kind of like hide away in the shadows, um, even though <laughs> the majority of the time it's like I'm the only black person in the room, or um, there's not many um, POCs, um, and that's that's what I took away. Thank you. And um, Kate is back. Kate, there you go. Um, not this Friday, but the Friday before, for our Shabbat services at Hevra, uh, ha had speakers who were Jews of color, and one of those speakers used a phrase, um, which was, for me, became a real call to action, which was, um, what are you willing to sacrifice to, um, I forget how the exact phrase went, but like, what are you willing to sacrifice? And for me, that was, um, that was a real like a moment of, of feeling like uh, it, this is not something I can take a back seat to. Um, and, and my answer to that was that one of the things I'm willing to sacrifice is my comfort. Um, and, uh, and, and that for me has been a motivator to have the uncomfortable conversations and you know my mothering is a part of my life right now and so that's um that's having the conversation with my children thank you and angela did you figure out the sound yes sorry okay. um I just feel very grateful to Rabbi Hirsch and you, Gwendolyn and Stephanie and Sarah, who were in my group. And I've been thinking for the past year about past generations, my ancestors who came over as immigrants, leaving violent situations in Europe and how they could stand on farmland that belonged to native people and watch the trail of tears go by. And I'm just struck with how whiteness 
um, immigrants who come over absorb the values of whiteness and white supremacy out of fear and a sense of survival. And that's really what I'm struck with about how this country was formed. So thank you. Um, I'm committing to continuing to learn and keep myself open to these conversations. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I want to thank everyone for being here. We'll have you out in by 1230. Um, and it means that we'll start back up at 115. We'll have the channel back open at 1, but we'll start up at 115 with Dr. Leticia Haynes, who is the, um, I'm going to get it wrong, the Vice President of Equity Inclusion at Williams College. Um, she's been working with Bridge on some of our contracts. Um, equity inclusion consultant, trained lawyer. Um, we're really going to be talking about um, the black community in this time of the Black Lives Matter uprising. So tell anyone, bring a friend, come back. Um, I want to, again, we started this morning really uh, focusing in on Richard Brooks's um, murder the other day. And, you know, we're in this uprising on the back of George Floyd and many others. And we, we have to hold that at center all the time. It's important to come together in community, but we've got to remember why we're doing this and just ask how many more lives do we have to lose? Um, this poem just really struck me. I'd seen it before, but it just, just because I think Bridge is immersed in food accessibility for families and just thinking about environmental stuff differently. I, I guess COVID-19 is like, again, made us work differently. Um, so this poem, The Small Needful Act Fact, I just want to end on it again, because throughout the entire New Pathways process, the breath kept coming up, right? And we keep, you know, these men just have been killed, you know, been strangled to death. So I just think this is a really important um, way to end the morning, and then we'll be back at 1.15. So is there anyone that would like to read the poem again? I can share my screen. Jeff, you're gonna read it. Can you see it? Uh, I, uh, I can't, but I, I have it pulled up on my screen. <clears throat> A small needful fact is that Eric Garner worked for some time for the parks and recreation for the cultural department, which means perhaps that with his very large hands, perhaps in all likelihood, he put gently into the earth some plants which most likely, some of them in all likelihood continue to grow, continue to do what such plants do, like house and feed small and necessary creatures, like being pleasant to touch and smell, like converting sunlight into food like making it easier for us to breathe. Awesome. All right. Um, sorry, I lost you guys. Sorry. All right. So thank you all for being here. Hopefully you'll be back this afternoon at 1.15. If you're going to mark in the processional with bio, that starts at 2.30. So just take your cell phone with you and you can tune in to 115 with Leticia on the road if you're not already there in Pittsfield. Um, I know that will also be streamed on Facebook Live. So 
you can join that virtually or in person. And then we will be back um, later on this evening, right, to finish up the day. So our schedule's on our website and on um, the bridge event, and we'll be back on Facebook Live, we'll end it now, but hopefully you all really gained something from this morning. I thank you all for being here and holding the space. Yep. Thank you. Bye. Thank you, Gwendolyn. Thank you for joining us. We want to thank the Bridge Sustaining Donors and organizational members, as well as our New Pathways sponsors, the Pumpkin Foundation, the Moonlight Mile Fund, Berkshire COVID Response from the Berkshire United Way and Berkshire Taconic Community Foundation, Massachusetts College of Liberal Arts, MCLA, and the Crane Foundation. Be well, do as much good work as you possibly can, and stay safe out there. This is our great opportunity, I think, to create great change.